Today on the Energy Podcast. Australia's brightest engineering students have some pressing questions about energy. If we could start over and build the entire global energy infrastructure from scratch... Does investment in green technology come from a motivation to improve environmental practices? My question today relates to how COVID-19 has shifted... And we've invited them to grill industry leaders, academics and policymakers. We talk the talk, we've got to start walking the walk on this uh, in Australia. And we have to come up with these solutions now rather than relying on the politicians because guess what? They are not coming to save us. All the questions are from a lively virtual debate you may have missed. Hello and welcome to the Great Energy Debate. There are two countries on very different paths when it comes to the future and cleaner energy. Australia's government announced a gas-led recovery in response to the economic crisis created by the global pandemic. But India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, recently reaffirmed its commitment to an ambitious renewables agenda, aiming to double its renewable energy capacity by 2022. Being grilled by students and giving their insight into the global energy transition are four experts. Simon Holmes Accor is Senior Advisor to the Climate and Energy College at Melbourne University. The energy, energy transition is well underway and Australia, yeah, we, we are winners in a decarbonised 21st century. Claire O'Neill is the former UK Minister of State for Energy and now the Managing Director at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, a member organisation of businesses finding solutions to sustainability. Go and lobby the heck out of your local and national politicians to make sure they bring forward you know, net zero plans at the Glasgow uh, UN conference at the end of this year and that they bring forward net zero plans at their local level. Dr Rubna Ghosh is the founder CEO of the Council on Energy, Environment and Water, a research institute based in India looking at the use and misuse of resources. Recognise that the energy transition is happening as a leapfrog in emerging economies, your least least likely of places. And Martin Wetzler, Integrated Gas and New Energies Director at Shell. The first step we need to make is that we need to avoid emissions as much as possible. Where we can't avoid them, we need to reduce them as much as possible, because otherwise we can't get to net zero. So, with host Georgie Barrett, let's dive straight into the questions. The first is from Ben Robson from the University of Western Australia. I'm interested in the future of energy because of its critical importance to society. Like myself, many students have lost trust in these companies and are upset about the commitment to carbon neutrality. How will companies like Shell, so reliant on fossil fuel productions to derive profit, really make a difference in addressing climate change? Um, Simon, let me just quickly throw to you. Um, You know, I think students must feel pretty disheartened um, that we're even still discussing fossil fuels right now. Um, What would you say to them? The hope is the reality that we we now have a full suite of technologies to deal with about about 80-90% of all emissions. So we know how to reduce emissions uh, in, or to, to, to remove fossil fuel from the electricity sector, we know how to move it from remove it from the tra- um, transport sector uh, as we as we go through the economy, uh, industrial processes and heatings. We we have a pathway to go forward. We just need to uh, we we just need to deploy 
and iterate, deploy and iterate. Just keep refining those technologies and bringing them down the cost curve like we did with solar, like we did with wind, like we are doing with batteries and we are doing with electric vehicles. So we know how to get there. Uh, and, and the companies that hop on that journey, and I'm, I'm, I know that Shell has taken some tentative steps towards doing that, the companies that hop on that journey will survive. Martin, um, would you say that Shell is making tentative steps or would you say that you are really trying to address climate change? How would you respond to this? Yeah, thanks, George. And I also want to just um, call in Ben's, square, Ben's question. Um, we need to get to net zero by 2050. And, and that is actually the ambition that we have, um, have formulated. Um, now, to get from here to there and to, to change the, the mix of our investment uh, from what we have announced uh, now to be 25% in, in that future of energy to become 100% in the future of energy, we need to work with our customers. We can be ahead of the curve, but we can't be too far ahead of the curve. It doesn't make any sense for me to stand there with a charger if somebody comes into my station with a gasoline car. I need to be able to, um, to sell them gasoline and clean electricity depending on the energy they want. And this is also true for our industrial customers. Let's go to our next question, and it's coming from the Queensland University of Technology. Hi, I'm Olivia, and I study a double degree of law and environmental science here at QUT in Brisbane. My question comes from an international law perspective. Despite many ambitious energy targets and goals signed up to by various countries, there are not many rigorous consequences if these goals are not met. So do you think that international agreements and treaties are enough to encourage substantial change? Or is a more robust and comprehensive model required to achieve these targets? Claire, let's throw to you on this question. You know, how do we get countries and energy companies to stick to the agreement? Well, Olivia is quite right. So we have um, an incredibly detailed international set of agreements. People will have heard of the Paris Agreement. Uh, they, they may not have known that this process of, of countries negotiating uh, for a, a, a better future started back in 1991 with the Rio Earth Summit. And sadly, since that point, emissions have more than doubled. And as Olivia will know from her studies, there are almost no consequences for not delivering on what you sign up to in one of these, uh, one of these treaty sessions. However, I think it's incredibly important, as, as we talked about earlier, to have, first of all, this ambition, and secondly, a series of policies behind it. So it will take a lot of innovation, particularly about getting alternative fuels like hydrogen to the right level of cost. It will take an awful lot of infrastructure investment. Pe people find infrastructure very boring to talk about. It is boring, but if we're going to have a real carbon capture and usage system that can de decarbonize industrial clusters, we're going to need a shed load of investment in new infrastructure. And last Lastly, we need a, a huge amount of, of interactivity, companies and governments working together to, to bring their solutions. It isn't as, as simple as setting targets. You need that direction of travel. But sadly, there are no rules for breaching this in government terms. Well, um, Dr. Gage, I'll be interested to get your perspective from India. You know, is it realistic to believe that India will stick to the Paris Agreement? What's your thoughts on it? Absolutely. India is sticking to the Paris Agreement. It's the only G20 country that actually has a nationally determined contribution that's in line with sticking below two degrees Celsius. And it is on track to achieving those NDCs. Now, the bigger question here is not just whether India will stick with the Paris Agreement. It's what is the condition that will be needed to for all major countries to ramp up their ambition. And this is where the inflection point of the pandemic becomes absolutely critical. How we build, rebuild our economies, how we 
kind of fast forward to a future that we thought we were going to invest in 2030 and bring that forward to 2020 and 2021. OK, let's go to our next question. And it is coming from Queensland. Hello, my name is Russell Savage and I'm studying a Bachelor of Chemical Process Engineering Honours at the Queensland University of Technology here in Brisbane. My question is in regards to the energy industry. What prevents large oil and gas companies simply selling off their carbon heavy assets to smaller companies that may not have signed up to carbon neutrality or simply offsetting their problems by planting trees rather than solving the true issues? Martin, I feel like this is a good question to throw to you straight away. Are large energy companies guilty of greenwashing? Well, I'm going to first of all agree with Russell that uh, selling carbon-heavy assets to another owner doesn't do anything for the system. Um, uh, and, and therefore, you can't parade it as a solution. Um, but on the second point he raised, I want to uh, go a bit deeper, because I do believe that nature-based solutions do play a critical role in the world getting to, um, uh, to net zero by 2050, or sooner, if, we, if absolutely sooner if we can. Um, we, we invest in a project in Queensland, actually, the Freja project that, um, that, that protects 1,800 hectares of, um, uh, of native forest. And in doing so, we generate carbon credits that are worth money. Um, and we promote biodiversity. So these are business models that have not just CO2, but broader environmental um, um, uh, advantages. But, but, uh, but, we, but I do believe we have to be very precise about how we, how we go about this. Okay, uh, Claire, let's get, get, let's get your opinion on Russell's question. You're quite right. You can't sell off the problem to small asset owners, and particularly when it we didn't talk at all about methane leakage or flaring, which is a real problem uh, for, for gas extraction. And that is something the big companies take very seriously. And as you get down the value chain, smaller companies have a much worse record. So really important that we measure and monitor those, those emissions overall at a national level. But I, I'm with Martin on this. I think we have done down the opportunity from nature-based solutions. And if you take Australia, which, as we know, is massively overgrazed, which is a problem if you have drought periods, the opportunity to regenerate some of that landscape using better soil farming. It's not just about planting trees, uh, using mangroves uh, in some of the, the, uh, the, the coastal parts the world, which of course has enormous co-benefits. So we, we often talk about nature as if it's just sticking some trees in and walking away. It's not, a, it's about recreating ecosystems that both capture carbon, but improve soil fertility, provide employment opportunities. And my question is, why wouldn't we do that? So, so Australia did have a carbon price for a couple of years and, and it, was a, it, was a, it was a well-designed price and it worked and it, and it was set up with cooperation from Europe. The intention was that we would enter eventually, we would link our system with the European scheme. And uh, Australian carbon farmers, and there are many innovative ways, uh, there's, it's, there's quite, a, quite a lot going on in carbon farming in, in Australia, um, can create, uh, can, can abate a tonne of carbon for about half the price of a European uh, carbon unit. So we could be Australia could be exporting billions of dollars of carbon credits every year. So it's a real, real shame that our, that our government shortchanged our farmers and our, uh, you know, those in the carbon abatement sector. But when we say this, we talk about you know, it's very important that we, that, we, uh, cap, that, that we reduce and eventually offset emissions. Um, but Shell is responsible for maybe, what, something like 10 million tonnes of carbon a year in Australia. Um, but is not proceeding with, with offsetting those. So we talk the talk, we've got to start walking the walk on this uh, in Australia. Um, there's, there's millions of tonnes of carbon a year that are unabated 
uh, and we've got to quickly move to getting those uh, offset or eliminated. Okay, let's move on to our next question, and it's coming from the Queensland University of Tech. Hello, my name is Samantha Ryan, and I study a Bachelor of Chemical Process Engineering at QUT. My question today relates to how COVID-19 has shifted society's perception of the norm and forced people to change their ways. How would we be able to use this example to create a similar sense of urgency when regarding climate change? I think it's time to address the big topic <laughs> of 2020. Um, and Dr. Gaish, let me come to you. you know, what lessons can we take from the pandemic, do you think? Two lessons, Georgie. First, we need to have a razor sharp focus on what is called tail end risks. The pandemic is one form of it. The, the, what climate change presents before us is going to be multiple decades of tail end risks becoming more and more the norm. And unless we focus at that end of the curve rather than the averages, we will never get our societies, our governance systems, our administrations and our companies resilient enough to deal with the shocks when they come in a perfect storm. The second big lesson is that anything coming out of the pandemic will not be sustainable unless we solve for what is considered to be an impossible trinity of jobs, growth, and sustainability. Policymakers and politicians tend to believe and tend to argue that you can at best get two out of the three. But what the pandemic is telling us is that if we don't focus on all three simultaneously, we will not only create bigger problems for ourselves in future, we will actually miss out on the opportunities that arise. Let me just give a couple of examples. Renewables today in India are creating more than 100,000 jobs in utility scale solar and wind, and more than 200,000 jobs in distributed energy. Combined, that's more than what Coal India, the world's largest single producer of coal, employs. The more distributed we make our energy system, the more jobs we create, the more sustainable it becomes, the more close you bring the energy transition to the common citizen. So this squaring, this, uh, squaring of this impossible trinity of jobs, growth and sustainability and a razor sharp focus on tail end risk are my two takeaway lessons and I evaluate every single proposal made by experts or by government through those two lenses. If they satisfy that, then it's a yes for me. Otherwise, it's a no-go. Okay, let's move on to our next question. And it is coming from Queensland. Hi there, my name is Luke McCallum and I'm a fifth year student at the Queensland University of Technology. I'm currently studying a double degree in mechanical engineering and finance. Today my question is, does investment in green technology come from a motivation to improve environmental practices or from a risk management perspective to protect shareholder value in the current emerging market? Leading on from this question, if research and development could only be focused on one renewable technology area, what would your company deem to be the most viable option? Martin, this is a hugely popular question over on social media as well. Um, sort of two parts to it. Can I, can I throw to you first? It's a, it's a great question. Um, on the first one, let's say today, Shell serves half a billion customers every year with energy. Some of them only once a year, some of them every day, but half a billion customers. Um, if I want to keep serving those customers in the coming decades, I need to offer them low carbon alternatives or they will stop buying energy for me. 
So R&D into low carbon is, is about protecting uh, the future of our company uh, for its shareholders, for its employees, for its stakeholders, for everybody. Um, so it is, it is fundamental and it is essential. It is not uh, something that we do as a kind of a social investment. Um, and of course, the mix of, uh, of R&D into clean energy uh, products it, it is now becoming the bulk of our work um, in that area, uh, because that always tends to run ahead of um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the big investments. Um, on your second question, um, I would put the breadboard and say, on electricity, we more or less know, know how to green the grid. So if I was allowed to, uh, to uh, make only one, choose only one area, it would be molecules. It would say to, to focus my R&D on yes. green molecules, yeah. biofuels and hydrogen, because that is an area mm -hmm. where we still face quite a few obstacles to, uh, to, to scale up um, uh, and to, to, get, to make it affordable. Simon, do you agree that green molecules is the way forward? That's definitely uh, de definitely an area we need to focus on. We are, as, as, as Martin said, we already know how to, to decarbonise the electricity network, um, but we are going to need green molecules. Just have a think about solar panels, how they came down the cost curve. They, they fell by 95% in cost over the last 10 or 15 years. And they did so not because we had scientists in, in white lab coats sitting trying to work out how to make a cheaper solar panel. It came because of deployment. Uh, we learned how to manufacture these things. Every day, millions of engineers wake up and try to get the, an extra cent out of uh, what it costs to make a solar panel. We did that through just deployment, deployment, deployment. And we need to do that with hydrogen. As we do so, the, the forces, the creative destruction, destructive forces uh, of capitalism and engineering uh, will bring hydrogen infrastructure down the cost curve. It's too expensive now, just like solar was 15 years ago. Solar is now the cheapest form of new energy, and we need to make sure that in about 10 years, hydrogen is too. Brilliant. Well, there seems to be a consensus there. So let's move on to the next question, and it's coming from Perth. Hi, my name is Carly Porch, and I'm a coastal engineering PhD student at the University of Western Australia under the Wave Energy Research Centre. And I was born and raised in Ontario, Canada. So my question for today is, if we could start over and build the entire global energy infrastructure from scratch using existing resources, what would it look like? What would you build? Uh, how diversified would our energy portfolio need to be? How decentralized would the model need to be? Thank you. Dr. Gaish, let's, let's go straight to you on this. Um, you know, give us your ideal energy transition portfolio. First of all, uh, we need to have a far more distributed energy infrastructure. It makes no sense to take the same electricity that we were generating from coal and transporting over thousands of kilometers over grid lines and generate that electricity from solar and do the same with grid lines and lose a lot of it in, in the transmission when you can generate solar energy from your rooftops. So distributed energy actually increases the efficiency with which you can have a cleaner energy system. Number two, we need to have a lot more direct engagement between the energy producer and the energy consumer. The energy system that we know is a, a long chain of intermediaries, and that's because of the nature of the energy system we built. What that does is it disconnects the final consumer from that energy choice. And today we have the technology to be able to bring the producer and the consumer far closer to each other. Number three, we now have the technology 
to actually do a word that's not come up in this debate yet, digitization. The more we digitize the energy system, the consumer and the producer is able to manage the energy system more efficiently in real time, not just upstream, but right down to the household level or the factory floor level or the vehicle level. And that digitization allows us to actually then use the information to change and modify our behavior so that our, our engagement with the energy system also becomes far more sustainable. So these three propositions were not available with us 100 years ago. Distributed energy, producer and consumer coming close together, and digitization. They're possible now. If I had a clean slate, I'd start with that. So those are Dr. Geisha's three propositions. Claire, what would you like to add into that? Well, can I just say, Carly, this was a fantastic question. Um, I guess the thing I would add, I agree entirely with what Dr. Geisha said, that all these things are possible. I would think much more about the 70% of the Earth's that is uh, covered by water because I think we have totally missed a trick when we think about renewables, about transportation, about the city, about the provision of energy uh, needs to cities which are primarily coastal settlements. Uh, we tend to be very, very land focused when we think about our solutions. And what's really exciting now sitting in the UK is this massive move to offshore wind and to starting to look at the potential for floating offshore wind. You know, we were talking when I set up the offshore wind sector deal about going from three to 10 uh, gigawatt gigawatts. We're now talking about going up to 50 uh, by 2030. This is an incredible resource and we think we could go to 700. Okay, so uh, Claire, Jordan, you're can, thinking uh, we should focus more on the sea. Yeah, Martin, please jump in. First of all, indeed, Carly, thanks, thanks for the question. Um, I agree with everything that Dr. Ghosh and Claire just said. and We are massively excited about offshore wind and particularly about floating offshore wind and, and one, of the, one of the early and key investors in it. Um, I would take a different lens for a moment and say, if I, if I could change the, change the energy system or redesign it today, I would start by making sure that as much as possible, energy demand means electricity demand. Today, only 20% of the world's energy demand is, comes through electricity, and we think you can push that up to 60%. If you really electrify heating, if you electrify light industry, if you just go totally to electric cars around the world, you can push it up to 60%. And that, as we were discussing earlier, we already know how to green the grid. And then on the other 40%, where you really need a molecule because you need high process temperature or you need very high density of energy molecules because you want to fly a big, big plane, there for now, you're, you're, going to, you're going to be using mostly natural gas and perhaps a bit of oil uh, while you're working very hard on getting hydrogen and second uh, generation biofuels down the cost curve to eventually take the place of those molecules. And of course, add CCS to the system as well to the extent that you're still using natural gas or oil. That, that to me, so, so electrifying demand and then working very hard on green electrons. Uh, and capture carbon and storage would be the three things, my three agendas. So it's a bit more from the demand perspective, but I think it's all consistent with uh, what my colleagues just said. Uh, Simon? What's fantastic is that we get to transition from where we are rather than having to start. Building a new grid would be very, very difficult, but we get to transition from where we are. Um, there's a wonderful process in Australia that runs every two years called the Integrated System Plan, looking at how our grid might develop. and. Uh, it's found that the cheapest way of decarbonizing our grid is to add a lot of wind, a lot of solar, and we rely on uh, gas less and less each year, 
and less and less coal each year as the renewables push them out. If we didn't have these fossil fuels and we were just starting with a blank slate, it would be difficult. But we get to transition out of them mm. and we get to do so Excellent. rapidly. Under, under um, AEMO's integrated system plan, we end up at 96% renewable in Australia in about 22 years. Uh, and we do so with wind, solar and, uh, and, and non-heroic assumptions about storage. So we know how to get there and we've already got a great starting place, the grid that we have right now to get there. Thank you very much. And thank you so much to all of our panellists, Martin Wetzler, Simon Holmes-Accourt, Claire O'Neill and Dr. Runa Bagosh. That was The Great Energy Debate 2020. And if you want to watch it again, you can find it on LinkedIn. Just look for Shell's account. 2020 has been a year that has undoubtedly been very difficult for everyone. But as we've heard from the students, work to address the long-term issue of climate change must continue. You've been listening to the Energy Podcast presented by me, Brian McKenzie, and brought to you by Shell. You can find the Energy Podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google. Just hit subscribe and you can listen to the other episodes on all things energy related. The Energy Podcast was produced by Fresh Air Production. And I must remind you that the views you've heard today are those of the people featured and not Shell or its affiliates. It's important to note that as of November 2020, Shell's operating plans and budgets do not reflect Shell's net zero emissions ambition, but Shell's operating plans will change over time in step with its customers and society. Thank you for listening and goodbye.